0: It's good to be with you this morning. I'm Kurt Parker. We're going to be in the Word today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You can turn there, but if you have little ones through grade 4 and you'd like them to be in an age-appropriate service downstairs, you can have them dismiss at this time, follow their teachers out. If you'd like to keep them with you, feel welcome to do that as well. The rest of you, 2 Corinthians 4, as we continue in our study today. God's plan for a healthy church, a study through the books of 1 and 2 Corinthians keys to lasting ministry in a fulfilled life. As we look through this, I think if any res- if the response from you has been reflective of the rest, I think that um, you have begun to have the blessing that I have had as I've studied this. We're back today in the Word corporately, and we're reading and studying and applying uh, the passage together, being prepared for today's study. Actually, uh, really springs from your consistency during the week. Uh, we talk about that often, and I I want to know. I want you to know. It's not because I don't have other things to say, but because I understand the real, the real key to these issues for you as you grow and as you come today, um, is to have a consistent time in the Word regularly yourself. If you missed setting a time, uh, study time, uh, to pray through the Word, you really missed the growth. You've missed uh, the maturity, the victory that the Lord had for you, and the preparation of the heart to take in the spiritual truths that we will cover today. In Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11, you know, I could spend some time here with, uh, with an interesting story, and I do like to do that from time to time, but I think I'm just going to take a minute or two just to remind you of really the imperative nature of this time in the Word that we encourage you to do often. But Psalm 19, verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. You don't have to put your hand up. How many need some restoration today? The law of the Lord is perfect to do that. Warned and keeping them, there is great reward. Really, the emphasis we place on this obvious priority can't be overstated. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we see that all Scripture is God-breathed. That's where, that's what the word inspired means. That means if you were standing in God's very breath, that's what you get when you read the Word of God. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate Equipped for every good work. So if you want to break that down, it's what's right, it's what isn't right, how to get right, how to stay right, what to do, and how to do it right. I mean, if you really think about your life, I think this applies to all the different areas. What's right, what isn't right, how to get right, how to stay right, what to do, and how to do it right. Colossians 3.16 says, and I I quote this to you often, it is one of my favorite passages let the word of christ dwell richly within you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another that word dwell beloved is present active imperative and i say that to you because that really takes away the optional attitude many in the modern church bring to the idea of reading and studying the word let the word of christ dwell in you richly uh, with all wisdom it's present active imperative it has the idea of taking up residence Uh, being at home in our heart in our innermost being let the word of christ dwell there and that's a direct command from the lord through paul to you and to me and it takes away that optional maybe i will today maybe i won't maybe i don't have time this is an imperative if you want to know paul saying you have to do this this is it if you're a bond slave to christ then you respond to imperative don't you Uh, you do this so that's this is what we do we don't make excuses for not doing it we uh, arrange our schedule so that we can and and again in submitting this imperative it really allows you to do uh, one of the one another's of the word of god and and we talk about that if you've been in the be the church cast that's teaching and admonishing each each of those one another's is very important to uh, the proper functioning of the body so you are to let the word of christ take its home within you to be at home there and that's in the imperative. So you can teach, that's give instruction about what's right, that's what we just saw that just a second ago, what the right thing is in some particular situation, so you have a responsibility to one another to do that, and then you have a responsibility to admonish one another, that's the idea of warning each other of danger, so you are very close to someone, and you become very close to people inside the church, and you see them, and you see what they're doing, and then you say, okay, hey, that's a, this is a warning to you, you should probably move away from that, this, doesn't, this is not going to be good for you. So Obviously, the reason then why we emphasize that is so important. De- Deuteronomy 8.3 says, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And Jesus affirmed that teaching in Matthew 4.4. 4. Do you remember when he was being tempted uh, by Satan? He said, but man does not live by bread alone, but by every word. So you can't just use part of it. That's the, that's the emphasis. Just kind of opening your Bible from time to time and letting it fall to wherever it's going to fall, and you just read that part. That's really not. That doesn't have anything to do with this passage here. It's, it's a, a commitment to study. And so we emphasize this often for the believer, uh, and, and we must understand you know, the Word of God is essential for life. You were made for the Word of God. So we want to set up a plan then to read the Word of God and take in the truths of Scripture, and you can find that in a trifold there at the back of the church on the welcome table. You can also find that in your uh, version. All kinds of options for plans to read the Word of God. So you set up a plan, to read the Word of God, take in the truths of Scripture. And as we've said many times, it, the pattern of reading the Scripture will begin to give you an advanced grasp on the content. And so that's what you want. And then that will allow you to build an understanding of that content. So there's no shortcut to that. Um, and so when we come together then, my job, according to Colossians one twenty-eight. And this is the reason why I'm bringing this to you. I have a job to do. Paul says, "We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ." For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power. So you have a command from the word of God to equip yourselves, Colossians 3:16, so that you can do the one another's. And I have a command from the word to from the Lord to emphasize the word of God in such a way that you may be complete in Christ. so those two things work together you see you have a job to do to be equipped and i have a job to do to equip you and those work together if one of those is missing then we've got a problem and paul really sums up his ministry in that simple statement he says this he says you know i labor and strive over the word of god for one purpose what is it to present everyone within my charge complete in christ and that's in the same line of thinking in ephesians the apostle paul is summing up his ministry He makes a similar statement in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. He says, And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. First of all, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we all all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, uh, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, verse 14, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine by the trickery of man by craftiness in deceitful scheming speaking the truth and love we are to grow up in all aspects unto him who's the head even christ now what were paul paul's main concerns about corporate worship then under the leadership of pastors and teachers well uh, number one teach the word of god to uh, to equip god's people uh, to serve one another and that word equipped means to be qualified to do something so i teach the word of god And you also apply yourself to the Word of God, and you do that so that you're equipped or qualified to do something, and that is to minister to one another and do works of service. Uh, Number two, teach the Word of God in order to strengthen believers in their faith. In essence, God expects the church, which is a living organism, to grow spiritually in Christ-likeness. It's just an an obvious outcome of the time in the Word that the church is to grow in areas where they need to grow, see? And Paul adds markers so that the church will know when that's happening. So it's not like, well, we're growing. He says, listen, you know, it's, it's happening when you know you're not thrown off course by things, see. When, when, when difficulties come up in your life, when hardships come up, when people treat you meanly, uh, when unexpected things happen, you're not thrown off course. You'll know you're mature when that begins to happen. You can stay a steady course in spite of the difficult seas. And speaking the truth in love. You're able to recognize, and you're doing one another's with, with each other. You can speak the truth of somebody's else's life in love, knowing that because you have that relationship, you can speak those things, and that's part of the way you can identify that these things are beginning to happen, you're beginning to be mature. Putting away childish behaviors. What are childish behaviors? Well, uh, grudges and temper tantrums, and always needing to have your own way, right? If you have children, you know that those three are always in there. And so how do you know you're getting matured by the word of God? Well, you're able to throw off temper tantrums, grudges, and, and having to always have your own way, and then becoming a reprint of Jesus. That's the goal, see? So you have a job to do to be in the word each day, and I have a job to do to present to you the word, and I don't get to vary from that. And the biblical word for spiritual growth is sanctification, and you've heard me say that many times. So you have a responsibility, I have a responsibility, true spiritual growth, true spiritual maturity. That's a process, as you've seen already. The process of growth that 's not an easy process; it requires meditating on god 's Word day and night and observing to do everything that 's in it, right? What does the word say? What does it mean by what it says? How does that apply to me? And then you apply it see and we take the truths of scripture then what you 're feeding yourself, what i 'm feeding you, the food, the nutrient, uh, the word of God, and uh, that we feed ourselves during the week and works together with the nourishment we get uh, together corporately on Sunday. And the Holy Spirit helps us to apply that to our lives. That's exercise, see? So you take in the nutrients, and then you exercise those things, whatever direction that application might take, and we're to make it a habit, and we do it consistently over a protracted period of time, and maturity occurs, see? Just like a human growth, and we, we know this, you know, it's never too late to start doing uh, things the right way and then receiving the benefit of taking in the proper nutrients and exercising and all that. So it is with spiritual maturity and growth. So maybe that's not what you've been doing up till now. Maybe your habit's been to sporadically read, maybe it's just open your Bible to whatever and read that and, and you think somehow you're growing, well, there'd be some benefit there, but you're certainly not growing any faster than you would be if that's how you treated your physical nutrients as well. So if, if from time to time you went into the kitchen, made yourself something to eat, and, from, and, and other times you just grab a candy bar at the store and, and, and you know, a big 20-ounce Coke or whatever, listen, you get the same benefit and the negative uh, impact by doing spiritual growth as you would by doing human growth that way. So, you know, John seventeen seventeen, Jesus prays to his father for his disciples. What's he say? Sanctify them by the truth. And then what's the last part? Your word is truth. That's right. Your word is truth. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So boil down. Spiritual maturity, spiritual growth is the application of God's truth to your life. Learning the truth from his word, putting into practice. And there's no shortcut to that training and that conditioning. And as we saw last week in our passage in 2 Corinthians 4, which we're going to get to just in a moment, the outcome of the ministry where we invest our lives is not something we control. Right? We saw that early on. We don't control the outcome of the ministry that we do. But, but the preparation of that ministry, uh, that's a volitional response, and that's what I'm appealing to right now, see, uh, of, of submission and, and discipline, and what I pray you've benefited from this week as you understand uh, the imperative of those statements. Now, turn, if you would, to your copy of God's Word, Second Corinthians chapter 4. Verses, let's pick up in verse 3, and we'll read together. Uh, the passage through verse 6 and, and a quick review of that kind of thing. Uh, as you meditate on what we've already talked about, you know, sometimes it's good to stir you up by way of remembrance. The Apostle Paul says that often. I, I'm stirring you up by way of remembrance. I'm not telling you something you don't know. I'm just reminding you of something that's important. So that was my, my thought this morning, to remind you of those things. But look at verse 3, if you would. Second Corinthians 4 says this. Uh, and if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Verse 5, For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Verse 6, For God who said, Light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Now, We've been marking waypoints, if you will, uh, keys to lasting ministry and fulfilled life, waypoints that you kind of set up in your life. Paul has speaking from his heart, and he's giving us his understanding of how to stay on course and have lasting ministry. And at the end of that ministry, of course, that just gives way into a fulfilled life. If you've done what the Lord has wanted you to throughout the course of your life, you're going to get to the end and be very, very satisfied as you look back and say, you know, I've done what I could. I've done what I'm supposed to do. I've, I've attempted to be obedient in these areas. And so that was our desire to just kind of pick up on what Paul's saying here. In a very brief review, this was our sixth key as being a bold witness. In other words, uh, as you read, if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Understand, uh, we just want to make the most of every opportunity that is given to us by the Lord. Just make the gospel clear by what you say and how you live. Because if our gospel's veiled, Paul says, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In other words... If, if our ministry of, of the, the Great Commission or the New Covenant that we've looked at already, if our, if our ministry of the New Covenant is less than it should be, then, then there is a detriment then to those who need it most, the unredeemed. In other words, if you're just coming and doing church, so uh, you, know, you show up here and you listen to the message and you do some of the fellowships or whatever, but you go home and you're neglecting the, the ministry of the New Covenant, which is your ministry, you've been equipped to do that, then it's to the detriment of those who are around you who are perishing and that's just a just a one-for-one comparison i don't think we have to go very far to see that if our gospel is veiled it's veiled to those who are perishing now we saw that we don't in our flesh have the power to take off the veil that obscures the gospel we don't have the ability to deliver someone from death now you have the volitional response of doing the ministry that you're supposed to do understanding that you don't have the physical power To remove that veil. And as we we noted today, you know, controlling those outcomes in ministry is not part of our responsibility. Additionally, we saw in verse 4, if you look there, in whose case, speaking of those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So for the unredeemed, a couple of things are true. The gospel is hidden from them and if you're not doing your job, it's certainly hidden from them. As they look at you, they're not seeing uh, that witness that's supposed to be part of your life. Uh, Number two, they're perishing. That's their current condition. They're dead. They're alienated, and it's in middle, so they're participating in that perishing by their wicked deeds. Every time they do something, they confirm that that is certainly their destination and their current condition. And number three, Satan has blinded their minds to understanding the gospel. So, Paul knew there was nothing he could do about those things. He couldn't control the outcome of the ministry God had given him, so he affirms that he, he can't manipulate these things. He affirms again he is and we are responsible for being prepared, as we noted in our opening introduction. So he says, verse 5, look there, uh, for we do not preach ourselves but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. And, and that statement really marked two more waypoints or, or keys to lasting ministry. And a fulfilled life. Seven was, lasting ministry is a ministry without ego. So no matter whether the outcome is what we want or expect, and as we used Arm Judson last time as our illustration, uh, who labored for so long with no, with no uh, converts, but yet at the end of his life, far from uh, Burma, when he didn't even know what was going on, more than 10,000 converts, 100 churches, uh, the Bible in Burmese uh, language by him, and a Burmese uh, English dictionary, which was invaluable to future missionaries who came along. So, but he, he, he was in consistent ministry over a long period of time with no apparent fruit, see? So m- whether the outcome is what we want or expect, so maybe uh, we start that ministry, we see a lot of response, and that's really great, or absence of obvious responses. Either way, it's a ministry without ego. And, and number eight, lasting ministry and fulfilled life come from a life that has a pattern of service. If you're wondering you know how do i get started in ministry okay well let's start by finding somebody to serve servanthood is a marked waypoint to keep you on course see it's the identity of those who have lasting ministry and it's done for Jesus' sake so paul in a way says you know i've learned these lessons in my life because of that see i can say with a clear conscience my ego has not been part of the equation with you as he speaks to this corinthian church I am your bond slave i 'm your servant for christ 's sake i 'll just give the message to you as a bond slave of christ and and so you can say, okay, well, why do we do that well that 's what it means to be a bond slave, beloved uh, right you do, you do what you 're told right when you see it, you, you hear an imperative from the master, what do you do? You respond right i mean it 's only in the modern church I think where, where we think well yeah well that 's great, but you know, that 's not really what I want to do you know i 'm not comfortable with that I mean other people are better at it than I am or any number of of self-justifications but the fact of the matter is uh, why do we do that why do we why do we serve uh, and we preach Christ um, and not ourselves it's not about ego it's just about being a servant and making the gospel clear well that's what a bond slave does you respond and then what happens well verse 6 then says this for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of christ and that was our ninth key to lasting ministry acknowledge that god is the one who accomplishes that transformation and that's just obvious if paul says I, i'm not i'm i'm helpless to deliver someone from death i can't take off the veil there's no way that i can go to battle with the god of this world and remove the blinded mind that he's put on people but i can do i can be equipped to do and i am sufficient to do this thing this ministry of the new covenant And then I just recognize that God is the one who accomplishes that transformation. And people who come to the end of their lasting ministry, end of a lasting ministry and have a fulfilled life are people who understood this key very well. And they've left the results uh, and, and the outcomes up to him. And that just really avoids the whole burnout thing, right? Because burnout comes from unmet expectations. I didn't get what I deserved, or I've been beaten down and I didn't deserve that, or there's not been a response that I thought there should be, or whatever. And maybe I just need to work harder. But beloved, if it was just about hard work, then Adoniram Judson would have had a marvelous ministry immediately under his care, right? But it's not always just about hard work. It is part of what we have to do. But then the response is up to the Lord, and he's the one who's working in the hearts of people, see? So that, that key is very important. The Lord's the one who accomplishes transformation. Now look at, uh, if you would, at verse 7, and here's where we'll pick up in some new area, and I, I'm excited to teach this to you. I, it was a very big blessing to me as we read it. Look at verse 7 in your copy of God's Word or your your tablet or your phone, whatever. He says this, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. So if you think about it and what we've looked at already, he really begins in verse 5 and all the way through verse 12 confirming that it's the power of God at work through the Word of God that's accomplishing anything of eternal value, and Paul says, it's not me. And he just really confirms that from 5 to 12, and we'll break these passages down a little later in our study, but let's read them briefly now. Look at your copy of God's Word. Just pick up uh, in verse um, 8. For we are afflicted in every way. For we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. For Verse 11, for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Verse 12, so death works in us but life in you. Now let's just pause right there. And that doesn't sound like your best life now by the world's standards, does it? I mean, look at it. We're we're afflicted in every way. That's in the pressing pressure. That's the same idea of, and we'll look at this later, that's the pressure that was put on grapes. And grapes were crushed, right? And all of the juice and pulp was expelled from it. But Paul says, we're pressed like a grape, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. We're we're, uh, persecuted. We're struck down. We carry about in our own body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested. So again, 5 through 12, Paul just affirms he doesn't have the strength physical body. He's not able by his own clever uh, set of words to change anyone's heart. But if you look back at verse 7, because there's a lot of things to be said uh, about this. Look at verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. And and really that's our 10th and 11th waypoint. Our 10th uh, in, in keys to staying on track for lasting ministry for life is understand and admit your own inconsequentiality. I mean, when it comes right down to it, um, personally, you don't bring a lot to the table. He says we have this treasure. What treasure? Well, let's just use, use the language that we've talked about. This is the ministry. This is the gospel ministry. This is the new covenant. This is the glorious message of Christ as Lord. Uh, this is... Um, the truth of salvation, we have this treasure, catch it. This wonderful, glorious gospel of the knowledge of the glory of God shining in the face of Christ. Man, we have that. That's the ministry that we have, see? That's God incarnate in Christ, the heart of the gospel. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Astrakonos, that's the Greek noun. The word implies a very common vessel, nothing special. It's one that was used for all kinds of things—the most fragile, the most discardable, the most easily re- easily replaced. Paul says, "We hold this marvelous truth, this treasure, in a very common vessel, nothing special." That's us. Realize and admit you're, uh, that you're not anything special. Something fragile. It's where we get our word for oyster, ostraconos something fragile something if insignificant he says of himself and all humankind job understood this so well as he's talking about the Lord and how he holds his angels to a very strict standard as we, as he's talking about how he uh, brings judgment on those that had fallen and all that stuff in in Job uh, chapter 4 verse 19 then he comes to men and Job says this how much more are those who dwell in houses of clay whose foundation is the dust and who are crushed before the moth that's a, pretty, that's a pretty accurate description of us, isn't it? It's a humbling contrast, really, if you think about it. The reality here is really splendid. Verse 4 starts by talking about glory, and then the topic is light, and it's the face of Christ, and then the knowledge of the wonderful gospel, and it's all contained, he says, in earthen vessels, clay pots. It's really a stark contrast, isn't it, between the shining glory of God and the face of Christ and the weak, fragile, breakable, ugly container in which this glory is held. See? And as we've said before a number of weeks ago, we we have an overinflated sense of our own importance in this culture. And an overinflated sense of our own ability. And if you get anything out of the last couple of chapters, you you come out of there realizing that that is not how the Lord evaluates us. Okay? So it's a really humbling contrast. A weak, fragile, breakable, ugly container in which this glory is held. And obviously enough, you know, that leads us to the next waypoint to keep us on track for lasting ministry and a fulfilled life. So you understand, you're really nothing in and of yourself, and, the, and it's the flesh that holds this marvelous, this marvelous gospel. And, and so this next one is a kind of restating a previous point, but as we've noted before, beloved, as as uh, we read. It's repeated by Jesus or by the writers of Scripture. It just means it's, it's very important. And again, people who get to the end of lasting ministry and uh, are people who know without a shadow of a doubt. And this is our 11th one. The power of the glorious gospel is not the product of human genius, and it's not the product of human technique. As we looked at, at the parable of the sower and the seed last time, as I told you, if it was written by modern you know, church growth experts, it would have been four different sowers. Right? And, and the first guy, his, his technique was terrible because he got nothing. The next two guys, they were okay, but they just got a little bit of result, but they didn't last. And the fourth guy had the technique perfectly, but we weren't talking about technique there, were we? We are talking about the preparation of the heart, the soil, which has nothing to do with us. So the power of the gospel is held in this clay pot, this common thing. That's how he describes us. And then uh, it, it's not the product. Any change is not the product of a human genius. It's not the product of human technique. You see. So, beloved, that's why Paul never lost heart when he didn't get the kind of results that perhaps his flesh might have desired. He knows he's powerless to deliver anyone from blindness or remove the veil or overpower the God of this world. But he also knows that weakness doesn't prove fatal to the gospel. Right? Weakness does not prove fatal to the gospel. Paul understood this so clearly. You don't have to be powerful in the flesh. Some in command of a huge vocabulary and perhaps a number of degrees beh- behind your name. You don't have to have any of those things because the power of the gospel isn't found in the clay pot. See? He knows that everyone who gives themselves to the work of the ministry should know that no inside of yours, no clever work of ministry that you do, no twisting, manipulating of people's emotions is going to get anybody into the kingdom. See? Mark this, beloved. It's a recognition of our weakness, our personal insignificance, the constant reality of the ugly nature of our vessel that drives us to proclaiming the truth and trusting in the sovereignty of God to use that truth, see? That's why the word is so important. Why? Because you don't have anything to give that's going to make any difference at all. So come back to the word of God. It's never the messenger. It's always the power of the message. And there are lots of illustrations we could use. We could spend a lot of time with Job, and we have just pulling that in, uh, and David and the results of his life when he remembered his frailty and the results of his life when he forgot his frailty and ordered sur- you know, a survey and did, did a bunch of things that just didn't work out well for him. And we can look at Daniel. We, we've looked at Daniel extensively in our study of that book as God's man in the kingdom and how he always pointed toward the true source of his power and his knowledge. He never went before the king and said, yeah, I, I've got the answer for you. What did he say? You know i have a relationship with god who has the answer he from him come all answers what did joseph say as he went before pharaoh uh, pharaoh said you, you i hear you can you can uh you can interpret dreams actually no actually god who interprets all dreams is the one who has told me what your dream meant so these see we see this cycled over and over again in the scriptures. so it's not something new that perhaps is being exposed to us but what i like is 1st Corinthians chapter 2 verse 1 you can turn there just briefly you can hold your finger uh, in 2 Corinthians 4. We just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 through 5. And, uh, and we get some great examples to, for the church, and they'll really shore up our understanding of these things we've been studying. And uh, Paul says this. I'm just going to read along with you. And when I came to you, brethren, and when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, Proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Verse 3, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Verse 4, and my message and my preaching were not in pervas- persuasive words of wisdom, but in, the dem- in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Verse 5, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Verse 6, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. Let's pause right there. Now, Paul says, remember when I came to you? I Recall when I first showed up. When I came, was I using fancy words and human opinions and stunning stories when I brought uh, the gospel to you? And what's the answer? Uh, no. His gospel is everything. It's the main thing. And God has determined to save men, not by human wisdom, but by the gospel, as we've seen over and over again. So when Paul comes to Corinth, he didn't come as an order. He came as a witness, he said, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. So number one, as an example to the church, if you're a note taker, he came declaring the witness of God. Paul says, I'm here to give you God's revelation. I'm not here to give you what I think I should, you should do. I'm not here to give you my opinion. And that has a very centering effect on the church. Again, as you seek the, the Lord throughout the week, and then as you come together, we do what you've been doing all along, what I've been doing all along. That has a very centering effect on the church. It, it, it puts the church right where it's supposed to be. The Holy Spirit has one will, and as we understand what the Word of God says, we all understand what it is, see? We progress in the, same di- in the same direction. And that's a great example to all of us. It's what all of us are to do. And, and that's what goes on here from week to week. See, you know, John Sando, you know, Gerald Harrison, John, and Tamara Leslie, you know, they were proclaiming the testimony of God in other places long before we all came here, and they're still doing it now here, see. And that's what I desire to do for you every week. And, and John, uh, Jason Sandroff does it with the students. And, and it happens in children's church and Sunday school and the Awana programs for children. And, ch- and all of that stuff, that's where that's all going on. See, that's our, all of our desire to proclaim to you, not our own wisdom, not some creative way to tell a story or whatever, but to speak the word of God in truth. What does it mean, what, what does it say, what does it mean by what it says, and how does that apply? See, just over and over and over. And people will hear us online, or they'll, or they'll come live, and they'll contact us or come and say, you know, we appreciate the fact that you teach verse by verse through a book. We have a couple of families who live in, far from us in the Midwest who've come through and visited us or found us online, and they regularly communicate with us and say, hey, you know, uh, we appreciate the fact that you just go verse by verse through the Scriptures. That's very hard to find. Well, beloved, that's nothing you... I'm not taking any credit for that. I, I understand that's, that's where the power is, so that's all I'm going to do. And I think that's a pretty simple thing to do. I think it's much more difficult every week to come in here and somehow figure out what I'm going to say to you out of the blue. I, the guys who do that, are just thinking, man, that's tough. But they'll contact us and say, I've never heard the Word of God taught that way. And I'm just, in my heart, I just say, I am so sorry about that. Because you have missed out on tons of growth that you could have had and not only that because you heard the word of god taught differently you heard just topical after topical you thought that's how you were supposed to study the word so you're just kind of looking up topics in the word of god instead of reading through it and benefiting from the entire teaching every word that proceeds out of the mouth of god see you know people are tired of three points in a poem in some kind of manufactured way to press into the word of god our own thoughts They're tired of politics all the time, you know, what we should think about the economy. You know, people are tired of Christian social clubs and social gospels. They just want something that really equips them to how they should think. See, God's people are best served by God's word, and and when we mention a political leader or a policy, it comes as an application of God's thoughts from his word from where we are actually in the word. And that's on purpose. It's not by accident, see. See? I don't want to spend time talking to you about what I think about all of that stuff. See, I want to spend time teaching you what God thinks and then you'll be thoroughly equipped to know what you should think and you'll be thoroughly equipped for every good work. See, I don't, I don't have to press my opinion in on you or what I think about all this stuff all the time because I'm just supposed to equip you for every good work and understand what God thinks and then you'll know what you should think. See? And I encourage you to do that as well. Not rely on your own, what you think is right and your sense of justice, but how the Lord portrays both the law and his grace and what you should do as a Christian plus what the government should do. Listen, these things are important and you should know those details. Okay? They're not meshed all together. But as I just teach the word of God to you, you can make that discer- those discerning thoughts. See? And as you read the word every day, you are encouraging and, and strengthening yourself in those areas. You know, and when you turn on the TV or you listen to some of these guys supposedly teaching the Word of God, you would think the Bible's just one big positive book, right? And I know some of you have the same experience, but sometimes when I get done reading the Bible, I feel like I just got through with a wrestling match and I didn't fare very well. And I'm worn out. Have you had that experience? Beloved, if you haven't had that experience, then you need to start reading verse by verse through the Word of God because you will. You know, sometimes it is really positive, and, and, and then you can praise the Lord for those things, and you can rejoice in the, in the promises and, and, the, and the joy that comes from these things. But, you know, sometimes it's not. And, and what we, we don't need all kind, you know, men and women with all kinds of flowery words that mean nothing. Paul says, I didn't come to you offering you a whole bunch of human verbiage and a whole lot of human preferences. I told you the testimony of God, not opinions. And that has a very, again, very centering effect on the church. So, it re, you know, so he reminds them of what he did. Look at verse 2. For I determined, he said, um, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Guess what? Number two, as an example to the church, the material wasn't original. And that's what I think when people come, I've never heard the word of God taught that way, or I appreciate that you teach verse by verse through the Bible. Well, you know, I, I am so grateful that it's been a blessing in their life, but it's not original. It's just opening the word of God and just, hey, what does this say? And what's it mean by what it says? And then, hey, let's make some application. Testimony of God is Christ. That's the gospel given to us in his word. You Remember Matthew 17? So we're not the only ones who, who try to shove our opinions in. Matthew 17 jesus 's Jesus' transfiguration. Peter had some opinions, remember? And uh, Jesus is there and Matthew reports to us and he was transfigured before them. Jesus is. and So he's, he's shining. Uh, that's the, uh, the presence of God. The Shekinah of God is kind of shining through Jesus temporarily there on earth. And uh, his, uh, Peter sees this his garments became white as light and behold Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him so catch this now so Jesus is speaking with Moses and Elijah okay <laughs> and uh, and Peter interrupts what when you read this you're like dude you know my dad always said you know it's better to keep your lips closed and have people think you're stupid than to open up your mouth and remove any doubt okay and uh, this is one of those points where you probably just could have been quiet. He says, Peter says to Jesus, that Jesus is sp- speaking to Moses and Elijah for crying out loud. Peter's, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here if you wish. I'll make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, quick question. Do you think that Jesus and Moses and Elijah were talking about building a small hut for each of them so they could dwell there? Unlikely. What were they likely talking about? Well, probably the plan of God, Jesus' impending death, you know, the gospel, making atonement for the sin of men, something that Moses and Elijah had looked forward to and something that was about to happen, and now because they're with the Lord, they understand more about all the things they wrote, and I'm sure it had to do with those things, perhaps other things that we don't know yet. So Peter interrupts the conversation, so God interrupts Peter and says... Because it says while he was still speaking, so Peter's still saying something, and God interrupts him. God interrupts him. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, "This is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, and you know, get on board, Peter. You know, you're not thinking about the main thing. You know, Peter, I'm not looking for your opinions and speculations and preferences. God says, listen to Jesus. He's accomplishing my plan, the redemption of of mankind. So." As Paul deals with this ununified church full of division here in Corinth, he, he says, remember how I came among you for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus and Him crucified. And, and that's much better, isn't it? And, and when we come together here at Berean on Sunday or Wednesday or whatever day it is for small groups or, or teaching time, wherever it is, you know, whenever we meet together and we, and we say the first thing after we've greeted one another let's open our bibles let's look at what god has to say you know we're not looking at politics not looking at economics social issues viewpoints human opinions whatever ideas uh, and that, that's just really good for the church to remember that there's all kinds of opinions but let's look at what god has to say today for us a couple of quick illustrations for the word of god as we begin to wrap up and get back to our original scripture but um God has to say a lot about this, and after giving Timothy a number of things to tell the church, Paul, uh, as it relates to their conduct, Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, he says, um, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. That's pretty simple, right? It's not not difficult. I think you could get a church model out of that, or kind of how you should run the service, right? Uh, Give attention to the public reading of Scripture, which we do. Jason does that for us every every day, right? We do public reading of scripture at the beginning of the service, at the beginning of our intimate worship time, as we move from, you know, ascending to the outer courts, to the inner courts. Jason comes and leads us in the scripture reading. We don't do our our greeting of guests there anymore. Why? Because we just think that once we begin focusing on the one we're here to worship, that we don't think we should interrupt that. We just think that should continue, and you should be able to be drawn into this close communion with the Lord as you you know, confess your sins and you put off the things of the world as alex talked about today and, and you just become you're interested in what the lord has to say because it's going to equip us for every good work see and that's that's on purpose it's not by accident see so until i come give attention to the public reading of scripture to exhortation and teaching paul follows up with timothy in second timothy 4 2 and he says um, i solemnly charge you in the presence of god and of christ jesus who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom you know when you start when he says i'm going to charge you and i'm going to charge you by the presence of God in Christ and I'm going to charge you by the one who's going to judge the living and the dead and I'm going to charge you by the one who's appearing and his kingdom I mean you're going to sit up and take notice right? I'm charging you by all, by all this accountability of the one who you know who's the presence of God and Jesus are there the one who's going to judge the living and the dead the one who's appearing with his kingdom all that accountability before all those things What what's he say what's he charge him to do preach the word that's pretty simple right that's pretty straightforward i I don't think you can really you can really mess with that too much it's pretty difficult to kind of impose your own will on that if he's charging timothy by all of those things this is then that's serious stuff would think paul says i solemnly charge you why paul because god's going to judge the living and the dead and i really can't understand how how a man can call himself a minister of god and do anything but just say open god's word and let's read it and understand what it says And then he goes on, he says, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. So the context is clear. Paul is talking uh, to another pastor, Timothy, but it certainly has application for us back to 1 Corinthians 2.2 and again in 2 Corinthians 4 where we are currently. Where Paul is following his own instructions and using his pattern as an example of what the church needs to do to refocus on the main thing. Leave behind the opinions. set aside the wisdom of man, Paul says, don't let issues get you off track as the Jews and Greeks did. And then Paul says, you know, it won't be easy to do. Second Timothy 4.3, he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Has that time come? I think so. I think so. You know, people don't want sound doctrine. They don't want to hear what God's Word is to them. Churches are full of people who won't endure sound doctrine. They won't listen to correct teaching. How do I know that? Well, they still come, but they just do whatever they're going to do anyway. Right? I mean, we could read through a passage that says specifically, "Don't do something," and when they t- when they walk out and they go and do it, what's that mean? That means they won't endure sound doctrine, right? I mean, you can come all you want, but if you're not obeying, then you're you fall into that category. And because there's a demand for people who won't endure sound doctrine, there's certainly going to be a supply. But wanting to have their ears tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So people will go from place to place until they find someone who will say what they want to hear or at least not say what they don't want to hear. And that's where they'll settle. See? Back in 1 Corinthians two two, Paul says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. Now, he's not saying that, that he denied the rest of the scripture because Acts 18 says that for 18 months he declared to them the word of God. So obviously he, he was going through the scriptures, and that would have been the Old Testament scriptures, and declaring to them uh, the word of God. But his emphasis was on the cross, and, it, and, and he means by that God's redemptive plan, God's revelation as opposed to human speculation. That's Paul's message. And that's his example to the Corinthian church to get them back on track. Now back to 2 Corinthians 2, verse 3 and 4. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in uh, persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So number three, as an example to the church, Paul wanted to show them by example. When he came, he wasn't arrogant and he wasn't self-confident. And again, ego was absent for Paul. See Why? Because there's no power in the vessel because it's just clay, it's a common pot. He wasn't trying to be like the world, like the, the Greeks of his culture, always looking for something new to talk about, as we saw uh, Paul as he went to, among the Greeks, they're always looking for something new. That's the thing about what passes for modern preaching. You know, they hang on to their own opinions, they hang on to their own preferences, they're always looking for something new, some, some new way to excite the audience, to, to uh, wear down the resistance or whatever, see? And in modern preaching, there's nothing meek. There's nothing trembling about them. Paul didn't come that way. He goes, I was with you, he says, in weakness and fear and much trembling. Now, that doesn't sound like the Paul that we know, does it? We don't think about Paul and say, hey, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. But we're not talking about physical illness here, see, because we see two of those words used in Philippians 2.12. So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my absence, not as, not as in my presence only, but also more in my absence, work out your salvation. Here it is, with fear and trembling. Ephesians 6, 5, again, the word, slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with, here it is, fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. And each of those times, it has to do with mental anxiety over an important issue. Paul, Paul says, I came to you with a mental anxiety over an important issue, see, and so Paul says, I was in such urgency over you. He was in Philippi. He had to run for his life. He, he was thrown out of Thessalonica. He had to run for his life. And Thessalonians traced him to Berea. And he had to leave there. He had to go, he, you know, he got to Athens. He saw the city given over to idols. And he's grieved in his heart. And he gets to Mars Hill. And he gives him a great argument. But there wasn't a great response. And they say, come back later. We'll hear you more. Who is the seed picker anyway? And, and then he's all alone. And he's very discouraged. He comes to Corinth. And, uh, and he, he sees the city dominated by sinfulness. And he has this terrible mental anxiety over the lostness of the city and he knows that he's hopeless in himself and he comes on into the city, you know, and he starts preaching in the synagogue and then everybody it makes everybody mad. So he has, to, he has to stop preaching there. But then the leader of the synagogue comes to faith and God gives him a little bit of encouragement and says, don't worry about this city and don't worry about what people are gonna do to you. I have a, I have a few guys here and, and there's gonna be good things that are gonna be happening. But Paul's, Paul's you know, he's... He's in weakness, he's in fear, he's in much trembling. And then verse 4 says, And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, see? And so as an example to the church in Corinth, he reminds them, uh, number 4, that when he preached, he preached with God's power, see? Paul says, I didn't come to persuade you using the right words, to exact the right responses, to draw you over to my opinions. I just came and I let the Spirit flow and let his power flow, and and he and his power were able to change lives. And that's what happens. See? And it didn't look too promising at first. And he preaches and just a few people come, and, and, uh, and he gets tossed out, and then, you know, Paul stays with uh, the leader of the synagogue, and then the power of God is at work. And, and he did all that, so verse 5 he says, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And, ver- and number 5 is an example, once again, he wasn't making disciples for himself. He wasn't making Paul followers, see? We don't preach ourselves, right? Second Corinthians four or five, but Christ Jesus is Lord. He wanted them to see what God was doing and give him praise. Now let's look at verse six and finish up with some closing thoughts about how this all works out. Look at First Corinthians chapter two, verse six. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of the sage, nor of the rulers of the sage who are passing away. Just to be clear, he's not speaking foolishness. It appears to be foolishness to those who are unredeemed, but he is truly speaking wisdom. And in preaching just the word of God, unoriginal material, that's not foolishness either. It's only foolishness to those who aren't mature. That's the whole point. In other words, it may not be the world's wisdom, and, and you may think it's foolish, and you may say it's simple, and you may say it's simplistic, but we're speaking wisdom. Paul says, you may not see it as such, but it is, I reject human wisdom, he says. The problem is that only the saved know it. see? Only the saved know that. That's what he means by what he says, among those who are mature. That's the adjective telios. Refers to full-grown, mature believer in this context. It takes us back to where we began this morning, see. But in 1 Corinthians 14.20, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. That's what we saw in our opening comments. See, Ephesians 4.13, Paul explains the process of growth in the church, and he uses the word again, you know, until we all attain the unity of the flesh, of the knowledge of God, a son of God, to the mature man. See, The writer of Hebrews uses the word as well. Same context in Hebrews 5.14, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. You're going to understand why we do this very simply as you grow in maturity because you'll realize this is really the only place growth is going to come from just working through the Word of God, verse by verse, breaking it down. What does it say? What does it mean by what it says? How does it apply to me? Over and over and over. And you don't have to be original about that. See? Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. See, in other words, you can, you can err there too. As a church, you can constantly be in invitation after invitation and and the basics of coming into the kingdom and not ever move into maturity. See, Paul says we're going to lay that aside if the Lord permits and we're going to move on to maturity in Christ. And this we will do, he says, if God permits. So in a sense... This is a Christian who's matured. So, according to Paul, the only people who know this is wisdom are the mature Christians. The world thinks it's foolishness. The world thinks it's a stumbling block. Immature believers want their ears tickled and need to be entertained, perhaps up until that point. Immature believers are the ones that are going to be tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine. They're going to be sidetracked by uh, you know things that come up in their life. They're, you know they're going to be children and hanging on to their own personal preferences and temper tantrums and all you know, uh, holding. Um, unforgiveness towards each other, listen, but those who are mature recognize the significance and importance of a single-minded focus on ministry that comes to the reading and teaching of the Word of God. And I think you can illustrate that in your own mind. I, you know, some of you maybe can't remember when you weren't a Christian. Um, you came to faith as a child in chronological age because, of course, everyone has to come to Christ like a child. Okay, so, but you came to faith as a child, and you know if someone asked you if you're a christian it's like you know all my life i've been a christian I, I don't know anything else and there's certainly nothing wrong with that and maybe you're you're in the same boat but maybe ever since you were a little kid that's all you've ever known uh, you've always been a christian but maybe you could think back to a time that you weren't a believer and and think about your reactions to the gospel before that time and some of you can fall into that category uh, usually your reaction was the gospel's pretty stupid and pretty foolish and people who live that way must be ignorant right they they lack knowledge discernment they're just the simpletons and maybe that was your reaction to the gospel that was more in line with how the world looks at at uh, biblical teaching and, and morality and those kinds of things that flow from christianity pretty stupid pretty foolish and maybe you can remember that and it didn't seem really very profound at all did it it seemed very simple uh, but then the holy spirit went to work drawing you and then christ Dying on the cross made sense and you repent and confess and ask him to be your Savior and Lord. And the interesting thing about that is is that both parties here could be at the same maturity level. Somebody who came to faith as a child, and that's all they've ever known, and someone who's recently come to faith and has understood uh, that now this is important stuff, you could be at the same maturity level even though perhaps you've been saved a lot longer than this other person, see? Because when you become a believer, the message of Christ should have taken on some depth to it and some of those depths would appear to be uh, so deep you couldn't sound them. I mean, that's the whole idea. The longer you've been a Christian, if you've been maturing, the deeper and unsearchable all of this should appear. And sometimes you kind of feel like the Apostle Paul in, in Romans 11, verse 33, when he says, uh, the depth and the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his, way, his judgments and uh, unfathomable are his ways. Before you're a believer, it was all very simplistic and foolish, but after you became a believer, the question is, have you matured, see? And if you came to Christ as a child, and that's all you've known, then the question is, have you matured? What's, what's your personal time in the Word look like on a daily basis? Because listen, beloved, if you're not in the Word every day and you're drawn, not drawn to those deep things and you begin to search them out every single day, you're still immature, regardless of what chronological age you may be. Okay, And this is not me saying this. This is very clear from the Word of God. But you don't have to stay that way, see? And there may be people who came to faith just a few years ago who may be much more mature than you because they've understood what they were supposed to do and they begin to learn. And it gets deeper and deeper and more wonderful and more wonderful and harder to understand. And the more mature you get, uh, as you look at the Word of God, it just becomes much more complex. And it's like, wow, this is so amazing. I need understanding as, as you read through this, you know. You know, because as you mature, you're going to begin to look at the cross and, and look at the gospel, and you begin to look at the incarnation and what went on at the cross, and you can't even begin with your human reason to plumb the depths of all that's there, see. But the indicator that maturity is happening, beloved, is obedience, see. Growth in the understanding and the application of biblical truth. That's maturity, see. Not chronological age in the faith, Not because you served on the deacon board, or you were a trustee somewhere, or because you've been teaching Sunday school, or you're in charge of whatever, okay? Or you went to some seminar sometime, and and it was just really great, and you really grew up there. Listen, it doesn't happen that way. It happens because you spend time in the Word each day, and you take on the responsibilities you have from Colossians 3.16, and you let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. And you start doing the one another's to one another, and then you come on corporately and it just springs right off of what you've been doing. And it, it flows right into what you've been learning and then I get to do what I do and then we are all equipped together and grow up in maturity. See, that's what that looks like. See. And so that's what Paul's ultimately appealing to in his prolonged illustration. In his sole focus to know nothing but Christ and Him crucified. And so Paul says, I bring a different way to do this and, and those that are mature are going to understand it, and they're also going to do it. Then he says in verse 6, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So through the proclamation of the new covenant, we're calling people to submit to Jesus, and that's only going to make sense to them who are mature but that's what we're supposed to do, see? And the craftiness and the hucksterism and the manipulation, because you think you should get some other response, and perhaps what you're getting is so you just kind of, you, you try to sell something like somebody would sell something in a marketplace, you try to make it more palatable, you try to make it more fun, more easy, lighter, okay? All that kind of stuff, see? Trying to know your consumer, you know, you know get over their resistance, make, make, make whatever your marketing uh, so much more appealing to them. Okay, all that that stuff is a sideline, okay? That's foolishness to Paul. Why? Because we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. When you walk out of here, beloved, I don't want you to think about what I said. I don't want you to think about me at all. And as the band leads the music, we say this all the time. We want to be invisible to you. We would like you to worship the Lord that we're worshiping as we play our instruments and we sing, and I want you to worship the God that we're studying in the Word of God. I don't want you to think, oh, that was a really creative illustration. I don't want you to think about that at all. If you think about that, please tell me because I'm going I'm to exclude it next time. Think about what the Lord wants you to do and then respond to him in that way because the treasure is in a common earthen vessel, frail, ugly, used for all kinds of common use, but the treasure inside is of surpassing greatness. Greatness. That's the the power will be from God and not from ourselves. We're, We're to boldly proclaim the message of repentance and submission and brokenness and denying yourself and denying your aspirations and your plans and losing your life to find it and bringing them all into submission to Christ and we're common and ugly and fragile but we don't derail the power of the gospel just because we're that way. Because it was never about the messenger, it was always about the message and if anything good comes, it'll be because God did it, see. Let's be dismissing a word of prayer. That's all I have for you today. And we'll pick up next time in verse 8. I'm excited about that. And so you can read ahead if you want. You know where we're going. All right. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We're so grateful to you for how clear it is to us and your, uh, the responsibilities you lay on us. Yes, we walk in grace. Yes, you you have covered our sin. Yes, our sin uh, has been removed from us as far as the east and from the west. Uh, we are no longer responsible for it. Nor do we bear the guilt or the shame that comes from it. If we are a child of yours, if we've come to know you as your as our Savior, through Christ's payment on the cross, we've received that, confessed our sin, repented, and believed in your payment for us. Then we no longer bear our sin. What a marvelous place that is! And 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 just as important, we will no longer pay the punishment for our sin because it's all on Christ. So if we're there, then we need to move on past those things and move into maturity. You have given us an imperative to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. Lord, I pray that we take that away, knowing that it's dwelling in a common earthen vessel so that this marvelous, wonderful, powerful message and its response will be from the power of God and not from ourselves. So as we do our ministry, whatever it is, wherever you take us during the week, whatever we do here during the week and on the weekend, Father, I pray that we will be those kinds of people recognizing our inconsequentiality in the grander scheme of all of that and then focus on the things that really have power, your Word of God in its context I taught verse by verse so that we can understand those things and apply them. Help us be a church like that. Thank you for the blessing of the many who do that. Thank you for Uh, those other teachers around me who uh, minister in that exact way. Thank you for the blessing of that. Thank you that they've been doing that for a long time and we get the benefit of it here. And Father, I pray that we'll be about the Great Commission as we go out from here, that most hear the gospel and respond outside the church door so help us to be those kinds of people as we walk out the door we'll have opportunity this week we pray for it we pray that you'll open our mouth and open your word and open their hearts we might be effective in doing it in whatever situation we're in whatever difficulty uh, that you brought on us however we have to suffer through hardship that we might be as we have opportunity as you give us a chance to expose that green fruit to the light of the gospel that we'll be faithful to do just that you'll open the doors we'll see you do it and then help us not to run from that opportunity. Father, we look forward to our fellowship right after this. We ask you to bless the time together as we break bread together, just like your church did in the first century. We desire that too. We desire to minister to one another, to give grace to each other, to encourage one another as we as we eat together. I pray that you'll bless that time and the food and all those who prepared it. Thank you for our ministers downstairs with the nursery and the toddlers, so difficult. and. And uh, thank you for their faithfulness and their humbleness to do it. Thank you for those who teach children's church and uh, allow us to focus up here because they're helping them to focus down there. Lord, thank you for their heart of ministry. Thank you for the stuff that went on this week, the, the encouragement that went on uh, during the weekday, people meeting together. Grateful for that. Thank you for the heart of people who lead that, who pull your people together because we need each other. Pray that you continue to bless that ministry and expand it. Pray all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, Amen.